0: Please turn in your Bibles to the Book of Romans. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, it is going to be found on page 1208 or 1207. Uh, we're looking at chapter 15. Uh, let it, if you could bring up the word cloud, I want to be able to remind you that we are at a Bible-believing church. We are unashamedly a part of it. This is why when you walk into the sanctuary, one of the first things that you will encounter when you walk in here is, is uh, probably not a smile... But it is a glimpse of an open Bible. The Bible up front on the the communion table is always there, open, reminding us that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you look around, you'll see the gospel emphasis. You'll always see a cross, and notice the cross that we have here at church. Uh, It may have the crown of thorns above it, uh, but there is no Jesus hanging on it. Uh, we believe that Jesus already paid the price for sin and therefore we're gospel driven. The good news is that because he died and paid the price that he now rose and we rose with him in a newness of life and that's what salvation is all about and that's why we're gospel driven. And when you think about the rest of the other adjectives about the uh, the emphasis there being multi-generational or missional or friendly or caring or covenantal or regional, all these extra terms begin to, to uh, help to show how the gospel spreads. Spreads out. We want it to connect not only with us, with, with you individually, but with your children and with your parents. We'd like for you to worship God together. We'd love for you to be able to, uh, to, to genuinely meet with the living and true God, not just know about him, because we want you to serve him. And that's why our attitudes are changed and we're friendly and we have a caring spirit. All those things come together. And I want to encourage you to know that though, by God's grace, those things should not change. Whenever you step into New Covenant Church, Uh, we are a Bible-believing, gospel-driven church. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're looking at the uh, book of Romans, uh, and today we're in chapter 15. Uh, If you look at the bulletin card, you're going to see something that's a little crazy, and it makes your brain a little bit stressed out. Uh, It's talking about Romans in Reverse. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I have never seen a preacher handle Romans in reverse, and yet when I went looking for pictures online, I actually found several that had. So it's not a novice idea, but I wanted to start at the end and then back up. Part of the reason for wanting to start at the end is because quite a few people get bogged down when you start at the beginning. Okay, let, let me just, uh, if you've got your Bibles and you're looking and, and now you can feel fairly smart, we've been in, the, in, in this series for just a few weeks. Uh, how many chapters are in this epistle? Okay, everybody ought to know that answer, especially if you have your Bible open and you're looking and there's the last page, it, it, there's white space at the bottom of 16. You should be able to know uh, that it only has 16 chapters. So when we're at the end, we realize that this is all that, that Paul said to the people of Rome. You know, we do know it's to the people in Rome because of the name, right? The book of Romans, uh, it kind of gives it away. But if you look all the way back to the beginning of the, of the book of Romans, you're going to see how Paul explains it. And I'll just read it for you right now. Is If you turn back to chapter 1 of Romans, Paul identifies himself and he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David? He has an interesting mouthful. But by the way, if you remember from the from the sermon that we did from the end, many of those phrases were repeated right at chapter 16 in the doxology. But when he goes on to explain a little bit more about things, uh, he says that we declared verse four. We declared. uh, And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He finally names him by name. And the interesting thing about the apostle Paul is for those of you that are familiar with the rest of the story, the book of Acts, uh, we, we, we learn about Saul's conversion to Paul. Luke, who was one of the guys who went on one of the missionary journeys, we learn about him in Acts chapter 16, Luke writes a history, and when he describes that this guy that we love as Paul, we would not have loved as Saul. It's quite interesting that, that it is this guy that God chose to write to the people in Rome to write to the folks that were in Rome. And uh, just by way of helping you to, to, gra- to gather the thought, if, if, if you were writing a, uh, a, a letter to some people that were living in Sussex County, would you use different vocabulary if you were writing to somebody who lived in Washington, D.C.? That's a trick question. Because if you say yes, then you're going to say, oh, you're treating people differently. But I do want you to know this, that when you are trying to communicate with the influencers which are gathered in the city center, or shall I say in the national center, uh, you tend to write with with the intent that you'll be able to influence them. When Paul was writing to the people in Rome, he was fully aware that these were educated folks. He was fully aware of their cultural uh, adaptations. He already knew how they did everything how they had to address who was the emperor or who was the Caesar, that he knew, he knew that, that the folks that lived in that area uh, were under greater pressure because they lived in the city, because they lived in that geographical area where the power was than if he, than if he wrote to the folks that were in Galatia or if he wrote to the folks that were in uh, Colossae. You know, those cities were farther away, they were much smaller, and they didn't have the same kind of educational expectations. And so when Paul writes to the people in Rome, he ends up writing to them some detail and some insight that's, that's more than what he gives to the typical average person. So if you want to be a good student of Christian theology, where would you turn? That's another trick question. All scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine. All of it, not just the book of Romans. But when you look at Romans, Romans is spelled out and detailed in greater in a greater capacity than the other books, than the other epistles. You know, you could say, well, it's not quite as long as 1 Corinthians. Well, you know the difference between 1 Corinthians and Romans? Paul Paul actually spent time with the people in Corinth, and he knew a lot more about their troubles. And so he writes 16 chapters about all the troubles that they have in Corinth. He hadn't been to Rome yet, and so he didn't know firsthand all of their difficulties. But what he did know is that they didn't have a good teacher. They didn't have a shepherd who who would explain the whole gospel to give them a theology, and so when you read the book of Romans in its treatise, it's, it's explained so very well. It gives so many details, and that's one of the things that I want to open up with as, uh, as I read the text for you today. First, let's look at our text. Uh, I wanted you to hear it. It's going to be looking first uh, at chapter 30, and uh, excuse me, verse 33 is the key verse. Verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now... The reason why I really have to focus on this verse is that almost everybody, and I'm guilty of it too, skips over this. It seems so insignificant. It almost seems like whenever somebody's finished praying and you just say amen, you just say amen because you're supposed to, right? You just go through with it. I always try to challenge you to have a harder amen because that means I agree. And if you don't agree, just be quiet is what I usually encourage you. And that makes you have to pay attention to the prayer, whether you like it or not. It's not just going through the motions. Now, when Paul says this, listen to it again, verse 33. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's where this text gets its crowning uh, momentum. It's kind of like driving the nail in all the way. The key word in this is peace. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, in order to get to that place where he's talking about peace, let me back up and start up in verse 14. If you're following along in your Bibles, let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word as it was given in the originals. We're beginning at verse uh, 14 of chapter 15 of the book of Romans. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers... This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing about the people in Rome. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. Now, I just have to just breathe for a moment and say, wow, he's got some nice things to say about those people that are in Rome. He says, I'm I'm very satisfied that you can do these things. And there's verse 15. But... Had to get that in there. Verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, by this time, if you're like me, you're starting to zone off and say, isn't that nice spiritual talk? Do you have any idea what I just said? I hope you do. But in order to help you to get it, let me reread it a little bit more. The Apostle Paul is writing to these people. He's coming towards the end of his conclusion. He's going to climax talking about the God of peace. But before he gets to the God of peace, he says, I'm satisfied about you guys. Verse 14, Uh, He says, I I know that you have been filled with goodness. I know that you have a lot of knowledge. You're even able to help one another and to be able to pass things on. You may not have a lead shepherd, but, but you're not destitute. Verse 15, but there's some things that you're not getting right. And that's where verse 15 says, I've had to write very boldly to you. I've had to remind you of the things that are true. Okay, he says, God's given me a grace. He's given, he, and, and that's, this I think is a reference back to Acts 9. God took me from destroying Christians to giving me a call to help Christians. And he says, God did this to me. I didn't deserve it. God's given me this grace to be a minister of Jesus Christ. And I get to reach people that are called Gentiles. Now, in, the, in, in your common language, how, how many times have you used the word Gentile in the last month? Do you ever hear it on the news? Do you even listen to the news anymore? The idea here is that the term Gentile in the Greek language has to to do with ethnicity. It's the root word comes from ethnicity or ethnic. Okay, so if you take that today, have you heard anything about ethnicity today? All the time we hear it. And right now, there's a lot of division and there's a lot of push towards equity. I was just watching a movie the other day on one of the channels that is Woke, and they were giving us new pictures of making sure you buy from businesses that have people that have more color or or that have more estrogen or that have um, more smiles or whatever it is. It's really quite interesting. But the idea here of Gentiles is basically a distinguishing between those that grew up with with Christianity or with Christ, the Jewish community, and those who didn't. Those who grew up with the Bible, I call it the Sunday school people, folks that actually were familiar from their upbringing about some of the biblical passages versus those who grew up without it. Those who grew up with it were like the Jewish community. They knew about it. They knew what was right and wrong. Even if they didn't believe it, they still knew the patterns. Uh, you know, they, they knew when to stand and when to sit. They knew when to say the certain words. You had that religiosity. Those people that didn't, the Gentiles, they were the pagans, they didn't have a clue when to stand up and sit down. They didn't know to say amen at the end. You know what I'm talking about. But when you get specifically, he's talking about if you're, if you're not one of the Jews, if you're not a descendant of Abraham by lineage, then you're an outsider. And he says, God gave me a calling to reach those outsiders. To reach the people that feel like they've been alienated and estranged, to reach the folks that are not a part of the elect or the chosen nation. Now, I'm going to explain that a little bit as we go, but in verse 16, he says, uh, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to these ethnic people that are not Jews in this priestly service of the gospel, so that the offerings that they bring, that these ethnic people bring, may be acceptable, and even the Holy Spirit affirming it. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, because of Jesus Christ, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. In other words, I boast in what Jesus does. I know Jesus. He's given me this grace, and I'm proud of it because God is at work in me to do these different things. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He limits. I'm not going to start telling about all my stories. I'm going to tell you about his story. Okay? I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring about the, the obedience of the Gentiles or to bring about the obedience of faith to these people who are not growing up with it, to these people who are ethnically outside of the, of the synagogues and, and of, the, of, of access to the, to the Old Testament. He says, I do it by word and by deed, and if I was writing, I'd say, and with passion but he shows the passion a little bit later. Verse 19, And by the power of signs and wonders, and also by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, kairusei, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation, but as it is written, and he quotes here Isaiah 52, those who have never heard, uh, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That was Isaiah 52. Those of you that are familiar with Isaiah 53 that's when he begins to talk about who will believe our report. That there's going to be one that's, that's going to be born out of dry ground. And he's got no beauty that you would desire him. Uh, he's talking about Jesus coming up in the midst of, of uh, emptiness. And he's the one that will be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Paul is already familiar with Isaiah 53. But he quotes Isaiah 52, the verses before. And he says, there's going to be people there who have never t- been told about him. But they're going to see. In other words, there's outsiders who they're going to meet Christ. He says, Those who have never heard will finally understand the message of the cross, which hasn't yet been explained. Okay, now, having explained all that, now we pick up in verse 22 to finish out this chapter where we get to peace. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for works in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Let me just explain that real quick. Paul says, I've wanted to come over and see you. I've been hindered. But it's going to happen soon enough. I'm going to be able to head to Spain. And on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop by and I'm going to visit with you. Aren't you lucky? Now He doesn't use the word lucky. He's a Presbyterian. At present, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. Now, I think... I think if you could bring up that picture of the map, uh, I'm going to try to give you guys a little bit of a view, that one that says uh, Europe. Okay, if you look there, uh, that'll, that'll go back to the other one. Okay, that, there we are. So if, if you got, this is where all the activity is going on down here. In the, uh, uh, you can see the Mediterranean Sea, and this is where Jerusalem is way down here. That's where the crucifixion took place. That's where a lot of um, major events took place. Now, Paul did most of his ministry not down here in Jerusalem, but he went up along by uh, Tyre and He went up by Beirut all the way up into Syria and up into the Damascus area. And then he crossed over into Turkey, which they call in Asia here. Okay, And if you could uh, switch to the other map, you can see his journey a little bit more, a little bit bigger with the colors. Uh, not that, this one, so he goes up from Jerusalem, he comes up by Antioch, further up here into Damascus, he crosses over uh, into this area where he was born in Cilicia, uh, but when he did his missionary journey, he's over here, okay, and that, that little thing is going to other places, they're trying to match me up here, okay, so we're, we're, we're in the same place, now when Paul is talking about Achaia, it's not over here, it's all the way over here, okay, so those of you that watched the movie 300, you know, with the Sparta people, that's from Achaia. They had the tough guys, okay? Now, if you, if you think about it, all this is in southern Greece. And if you go a little further, because this is where you got Corinth and Athens both next to each other. If you go further, that's when you get to Macedonia. Now, and that was where you got the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call took place when Paul was over here in Turkey and he said, and, they, and, the, and the dream that the Holy Spirit told him, come on over to, to, or go west, young man, go west, as Michael W. Smith wrote a song. Go west, okay? Instead of going east over to China and go over to that way, he said go west towards Europe and so that's why we have the missionary journeys largely going west, west, west. And so when he went over to Macedonia, that's when you get the Macedonian call, which is at the northern part of Greece. Now, when you're looking at these terms that I've been reading for you, uh, there's also, uh, go to that other one that has not many colors. Yes, if you look, not this one, but the next one. Yeah, this one's good. Now, if you look here, when he, when he makes that trip over to Neapolis, which is in Macedonia, then, then he keeps going west. And this whole area up here, if we, if we um, highlighted it, that's where uh, Paul's... Ex- extent of his missionary journey was. North of Berea, he went into, and I want to pronounce that correctly, Ilia. Uh, that's the one. I haven't been there yet. Illyricum. Okay, he's made it all the way up there, so I mean, just look how cool he's up to that far, all the way down here, uh, down here to Jerusalem. That's how far he has taken the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he called it a grace. So you can switch back to the uh, Bible verses now. Uh, when you realize that... Whew, that's a long distance when you don't have an airplane. It's a long distance if you don't have a car. It's a long distance if you don't have a bicycle. Now, I mean, the best means of transportation obviously was with ships, and that was a lot easier because once you got on a ship, at least it would, uh, you could go to sleep there and you could wake up at the port. But uh, let me take you back to verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia, those churches that are meeting up in in that north area and the people that are meeting in Sparta or down in in the Achaia area, these Christians have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. In other words, they had collected an offering. They had taken up money. Imagine Christians giving money in an offering. It's pretty cool. And these were people that were not native to all of the Old Testament stuff. So these folks, they wrote, they took up an offering, they wanted to take care of some of the people in Jerusalem that were going through persecution. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles, or if those ethnics uh, that are outside of the Jews, had come to share in those same spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. In other words, he says, man, this makes sense. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered them, delivered to them in Jerusalem what has been collected, I will then leave for Spain by way of you. In other words, I'll make my trip up through Italy and I'll come to Rome. That And he says, verse 29, I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. In other words, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to be happy. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. So even though he's going to be happy to come, he says, you better pray. You better pray hard. He said, I want you to strive together. I don't want you to just be individual. I want you to be corporate. I want you to be collective. He says, pray with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. I'm glad it's not to anybody else. Talk to God about this. He says, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you and with joy be refreshed in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Now, I just wanted to reverently attend to the public reading of God's word, but now that you've got it, uh, I think it'll be easy to explain. So, if you're uh, saddle up your horses, let's ride. I want to explain to you by way of introduction that the book of Romans was written to these people up in Rome that are fairly smart, but part of the reason he's telling them that they have a lot of it together is because he's written a lot. When you're in chapter 15, how many chapters has he already given them? Fourteen. Okay. They were digesting this stuff. This is from God's apostle. This is the scripture. What other scripture did they have before this? It's, it's very unlikely that they had much. They had the Old Testament scrolls, but they had to be translated because the people in Italy only knew Latin. They, they were probably familiar with Greek because uh, Alexander the Great had, had conquered everything. But, but if you think about it, hmm, this is pretty special to get the word of God. Now, having, having said that they've got the word of God... I, <laughs> I want you to be able to see that the intent of this epistle is about the righteousness of God. On the front of the bulletin, I've been quoting it every week, and as one person has reminded me, he says, you haven't focused on it. In verse 17 of chapter 1, the righteousness of God is seen in the book of Romans. And I wanted to quickly walk you through the Romans' road on righteousness. Many of you have never seen this before, so hang on and let me show you. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to a God who has righteousness. Can you bring up that verse, chapter 1, verse 17? And it's clear, for I am not ashamed of the power of god this is verse 16 is revealed from faith to faith. for the righteous shall live by faith but the next verse says for in it uh no i want verse 17 for in it the righteousness of god now just just swallow that for a moment who is righteous god is righteous and the book of romans is about the righteous god now if you if you just have to digest that if you get that god is righteous everything else in the book of romans makes sense Okay, because the next verse that I want to take you to is chapter 3. If you go to Romans chapter 3, you're going to find out that the righteousness of God is awesome, but you don't have it. Okay, if you look there, there is, it is written, there is none righteous. Finish off with me. No, not one. Now, is anybody in this room righteous? Trick question. Okay, in Christ we have it, but let me explain it to you. According to the people, according to the apostle, when he explains to people about righteousness, he says, God has the righteousness, but people don't have that righteousness. And that's why if you read chapters 1 towards the end from verse 18, I think you had it up there a second ago, Romans 1, 18, that because God is righteous, the wrath of God is poured out on the people who are unrighteous. And so if you look there, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness, and the unrighteousness of men. And let me include women there i do have equity (laughs) there is none righteous no not one and so now we have this wonderful dilemma that is found the bad news of the book of romans is that god is holy he's righteous and people are unholy and they're unrighteous and now we have a holy god and an unrighteous people and what happens when you bring the two together you have harmony right you have bliss You just want to tiptoe through the tulips. You just want to say, oh, isn't everything wonderful? This is why so many people get, they don't get the gospel because they think God is just Santa Claus. You know, he delivers even though all the cargo ships have all the gifts. I'm joking. The the point I'm going to make is that when you have this conflict, there is a problem that has to be resolved, and the book of Romans resolves it. The people in Rome are getting special attention from the pastor named Paul to be able to show them how it fits. Romans chapter 3, if you go to verse 21 and 23, if you look at those verses, you're going to see clearly that there is a remedy. That even though God is righteous and the wrath of God has to be poured out on all unrighteousness because all are unrighteous, and and that includes whether you're ethnically Jew or whether you're a Gentile. But in chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, uh, it clearly says, but God did something. But now, this is why the Apostle Paul is explaining it to the people in Rome, and I'm explaining it to you through him, but now, uh, if you could back up a verse, back up a verse, uh, back up a verse, there we are. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested in a new way. It's a new way. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by your perfection. It's not by your performance. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, now there is a salvation method that you can get righteousness that is not yours. Let me think about that for a moment. You can can have a status of righteous without being perfect that's the gospel do you get it now i'm hoping you're going to get that because it it, the the reason that paul explains a lot of this and i'm still in the introduction so i'm i'm frustrated i don't have more time but you're going to get imputed righteousness and you're also going to have this this change that comes with the imputation i know that's a big word but what happens is this okay this is God, he's holy. This is man, he is unholy. And he's cowering because the wrath of God is going to come on. So the holy God looks at sinful man and he says, I'm going to do something to fix your situation. I'm going to give you a righteousness that you can't earn. You can't buy it. You can't, you can't get it from your ethnicity. You can't even get it from going to church every week. You can't even get it if you outgive everybody in the church and putting more money in the offering boxes. You won't be righteous because you do that. There is a righteousness that I'll give you that's apart from your performance. And he says, that righteousness is my righteousness. And that's where you understand Jesus. Jesus came to this world, and he was the only righteous human being that's ever walked this world. You know, Adam and Eve had it for just a short amount of time. But Jesus was righteous. There was no thing that he did that was wrong. He was the only one that was found worthy. He was the spotless lamb because he was righteous. He had the righteousness of God because he is God. There was no sin found in him, no blemish, no hint of, of infidelity. It's so amazing when you think of Jesus. And so God the Father looks at these sinful people and he says, I'm going to give you a righteousness. Jesus lived the righteousness. And then Jesus said, I'll exchange my righteousness for your sin record. And that's how he will impute Christ's righteousness to our account some people call that a banking term that if if, if i went ahead and i got your banking information and i put thousand dollars in your bank account it's yours right it is what did you do to get it nothing and see that's why it's so interesting when you hear the gospel the righteousness of jesus was put to your account sometimes i use the illustration like a doctor's coat because most doctors have a coat that's what color Okay, so when you get a white robe, you almost feel like you're special. They sometimes feel like they're special. we got some in here, and they are special. But my point about being clothed in righteousness, it's pictured in the book of Revelations as being spotless. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't look at you as a sinner. He doesn't look at you as unrighteous. He looks at you with your bank account full of Christ's righteousness, and he says, you are righteous. And now the interesting thing, if you go to Romans chapter 6, verse 1, now that you've got this righteousness that is apart from law-keeping, apart from your performance, then the question logically comes up. And if you look there, Romans 6, verse 1, uh, and that says, uh, it's a great question that arises. It's a great illustration that's now in front of you. It says, what? Can we keep on sinning? In seminary, we had one guy who was a cut-up clown, and he used to say, Wee! we get to keep on sinning! Because our righteousness is not based on our performance. Sad thing about it. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue to do what we normally do? If we've got this imputed righteousness? No. In fact, the strongest language you'll find in the Greek is right there. May it never be. Never. Those of you that have received a righteousness that is not your own, but has been put to your account, you are not supposed to exploit that and abuse it and misuse it. You are not supposed to be the fool that says, oh, I can do whatever I want to do. I can lie. I can cheat. I can steal. I can sow division. I can be angry. I can deceive. May it never be, especially within the body of Christ. Now, that's the book of Romans. Uh, this is what they got, and I can explain a little bit more to you in Romans chapter ten about the righteousness. He he prays that even the Jews, the the ethnic and that ethnicity that he grew up with, that they would get the gospel too, because he's having so much success sharing the gospel with people who are not Jewish. Their understanding about this good news that you can have a righteousness that's apart from your performance, it's based on Christ's performance. When he went to Calvary and took the punishment for your sin and gave you the cup of blessing, which is the cup of righteousness that's yours own, your own for eternity. Now, if you're taking notes now and following along, there's three things that I want you to be able to see in this text. First, I want you to see the pastor's intensity. Then, I want you to see the pastor's integrity. And then, uh, excuse me, his itinerary and then his I- integrity. Very briefly, you already see it because we went through the text. The first is the pastor's intensity. When the key verse here is verse 13. of chapter 15 now paul has already given the people in rome all of this information and now in verse uh, when he finishes up almost everything it comes down in verse 33 may the god of peace be with you all in other words i want every one of you to be at peace that god who is righteous i want you to be at peace I want you to enjoy peace. Let me explain that a little bit more. I I was trying to go through and do a little bit of a search on what peace means. Uh, Peace is an interesting word, irene, in the Greek. Uh, It it means, uh, as a verb, it means to cause others to live in peace. Or it means to be at peace. So one has to do with you doing something to help others so that they stop being their turmoil. And the other is to be at peace inside of your own self, to do something to try to do that. Now, in today's world, how do you get peace? If you listen to the secular people, they're going to tell you yoga is good. They're going to tell you to change your diet. Make sure you stay away from Coca Cola. I'm sure there's other things too. But then they're going to tell you turn off the television stations too, because you don't want to be bothered by anything that will give you turmoil. But in today's society, the best way to get peace from them is to take a pill, maybe an injection. Okay? And, and the irony is that you end up taking another, and you take another, and you take another. And sometimes you end up taking so much that you don't even know what day it is. And you don't care. Because you're at peace. You know, you've taken that Calgon bath. It's taken you away. Now, that's one way of peace. Another is, uh, if, you, if you take the noun peace, which is in the text here today, it's a state of concord or a state of harmony. Now, that is interesting because he says that could be when you're dealing with governments, you know, that you're not at a state of war with another country. Because let me tell you, when my dad told me about what it was like to go to be at war during Nazi uh, battles back in World War II, that was hell. It was so bad, he never really wanted to talk about it. That's awful, to be at war with another country. But it's also, secondly, it's also sad to be at war in relationships with people that you're supposed to be friends with. It's awful. Why do you want to be in a situation where you're living almost like the Cold War? That's how we do it now, right? We've learned it very well from the Russians and the Americans. We just get cold. We just build fences. We just don't talk to anybody anymore. There's a state of being at peace. That's another one of these things, the peace of God. It also is reflective of being in heaven. We had a funeral for Don Baird, and it was interesting how we talked a lot about his quips and a lot, a lot about his life and a lot of the blessings. But the one thing that we always long for is that peace that passes earthly understanding. It's the peace when you're no longer at enmity with God. When you no longer have a sin nature that's pulling you away from the holy, righteous God. It's a beautiful thing when we think about heaven. I'm going to be preaching about it during this Advent season, about what it means for the second Advent. Now, having, having explained all of that, it is really quite beautiful to see uh, how this peace is supposed to be with you all. And uh, I, I, if I could highlight just a few verses in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, uh, let me read it for you. He says, To all that are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be a saint's grace to you, and he says, Peace! Peace from the righteous God, from our heavenly Father. Now, it's really interesting that from the very beginning, he writes this letter. He wants the people in Rome to be at peace with God. And that's why when you go down, you can say several things that uh, in verse chapter 3, verse 17, you don't have the verse, but it says, they don't know the way of peace. Because in chapter 3, everybody's gone like sheep and down their own path. and They don't know what peace is. And that's where many people, maybe some of you are here today, and you're like sheep looking for those peaceful pastures. You're looking to be able to find that calmness beside some still water. And every time you go, the waves come crashing down. In chapter 5, verse 1, you finally get the good news. After he talks about the righteousness that God will impute to you, then he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith and not by works, we have... we have something. We have a peace, that I reignate. We have that harmony. We have something with God that it's not going to go away. That's why I believe in eternal security. When God has taken away this, this, this enmity, it's not going to come back. It's so beautiful when you realize that. In Romans chapter 8, after, right before he gets to all the chapters about the Holy Spirit, what he does to us. He says, for to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When you realize that the Spirit of God is doing all these wonderful things in your life. That was verse, uh, I mean, I just, I just want you to, to fathom how wonderful it is. That's why when he gets down in chapter 14, right? Every, when he wraps, excuse me, the end of chapter 15. He wraps up all of his thoughts because in chapter 16, of course, he gives you the great contrast between the the 33 people that are following the Master Jesus and those who aren't, and he gives you the great doxology where he says, hey, to the only wise God, to the God who figured it out, how to make unrighteous people righteous. That's amazing. That's why he said, be glory forever and ever. That's what that sign behind me says, sola Deo Gloria, only to God be the glory. Not to you, not to me. It's not by our works which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it so well, for by grace you've been saved. It's not by yourselves, it's not by works. Even that faith is a gift from God, not of works, lest you would be able to boast. The works that you end up doing are because you're, you're created in Christ Jesus to do these things. Because he's already given you a new status as a child of God. Now, I mentioned the first part is about this, this uh, pastor's intensity. It's all about peace with God. Secondly, the pastor's itinerary. We are introduced to the future travel plans to come uh, that are, that are going to happen soon. Some people get caught up about, well, where's my pastor today? It's almost like, where's Waldo? You're looking for him. He's not in the office, he's in the office. He's at home or he's traveling. He's at this conference or he's over there. He's on the phone or he's in his car. Whatever it is, there's some people that do get caught up with this. The Apostle Paul is working with these folks in Rome and he says, hey, I I know I'm not there that yet, I'm not there like I said I wanted to be there, I've intended to be there, but there's been some hindrances. It just hasn't worked out. I have good intentions, but it hasn't worked out. And so if you look at the verse, he says, uh, verse 22, this is the reason why it hasn't worked out. This is the reason why I've been so often hindered. I wanted to do it. I wanted to follow through. I wanted to get it all taken care of. But verse 23, but now, whew, you can just hear him exhale. But now I finally get to do it. God has given me the ability to leave this other stuff behind, and I'm going to step out. I'm going to do this, this, and this, Lord willing. And so what he ends up saying is, i got to go down to Jerusalem first. Once I take care of the business in Jerusalem, then I'm going to take off to, and I'm going to come and visit you in Italy, in Rome, and then after we stay for a little while and you refresh me and you help me to get strong, I'm going to go out to those scary places out in Spain where the conquistadors are, you know, where they speak Espanol or Portuguese, whatever it is. Okay, I'm going I'm to get all strengthened up so I can head out there and I can tell them about how they can have peace with God because of a righteousness that is imputed to them not by their performance or their church attendance or by their giving in that box but because God loved them and gave it to them. Wow, it's pretty amazing when you think about this. So you see the itinerary. Six times he tells them I'm planning to come. Why would the, why would the apostle tell him this? Why would the pastor tell him six times? Let me just tell you, verse 22, uh, I've been hindered from coming. Verse 23, he says, I've longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you soon. He says, but once I have enjoyed your company for a while. If you look down in verse 28, he says, I will leave Spain by way of you. I I know that when I come to you, and even down in verse uh, 32, he says that I want to be refreshed in your company. He says it over and over and over and over and over again in these passages that he says, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Don't get disappointed. Because remember, your righteousness is not linked to me. Your righteousness is because of what he did. Your pastor's going to let you down. I love that little video that they showed. Sean, you did a great job. (laughs) You know, this this may be all you get on earth. (laughs) Oh, it reminded me of a card that I got, um, which was for Pastor Appreciation Month, and it has Jesus feeding bread and fish to people. And uh, it says on the front, uh, the one question is, I can't eat that, I'm a vegan. And then it has another person from the crowd saying, Has that fish been tested for mercury? And then there's another one, Is that bread gluten free? <laughs> then, of course, on the inside made me laugh. It just said, Avoid the complainers and have a great day. <laughs> the fact is, is that the pastor here couldn't do what he wanted to do. He had great intentions. He couldn't follow through. He said over and over and over and over and over again, but there was a lot of unrest and disharmony. And that's why I've come to point three, which is from, from the reverse, we see the pastor's integrity. So I started off with the piece. I backed up, and I told you the itinerary, and now I'm going to go to his integrity. If you look at me with the verses from verse 14 on, you're going to see the pronoun I, me, and mine over and over and over and over again. Normally, when you talk about I, me, or my, what are you doing? You're boasting. Some of you were concerned about that, that when somebody got in the pulpit and talked about all about my itinerary or the previous guy, all about all the things that we've done. I've done this, I've been here, I've done that. You know, it's almost like Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere, man. Some of you might miss the beauty of that. To be able to see how God orchestrates things to take you from here to there. And he works out all of the small things. There's no maverick molecule in the universe, to quote from R.C. Sproul. And that's why we can honestly say that he works all things together for the good, Romans 8, 28. Now, in this particular point about the integrity, beginning in verse 14, he says, I I know myself. He gives the reflexive here and he says, so he says, I myself, which is a redundancy that, that in the Greek you have. It sounds really strange in English. I myself am satisfied. But he's going overboard and saying, look, I know who I am. I'm here not because it was my first choice. I'm here because God told me to do this. And so you can hear it. He says, "I, I know you're my brothers over there in Rome. He says, there's three things about you. He says, you are full of goodness. You are filled with knowledge. And you're even eager to share it with others. If you look there in verses uh, 14, you can see it. That's the way we ought to be. I hope you're filled with goodness. I hope that you are filled with knowledge, and I hope you tell somebody about this stuff. If you haven't, shame on you. Why would you hide it? Why would you take this truth and bury it in the tent? If this stuff is true, people need to hear it. And they can hear it by your words, by your deeds, and with your passions. I'm telling you, it's pretty easy. As you go into all the world, as Jesus is in you, he's going to be evident wherever you are, in the grocery store, even even when you're in the bank, even when you're in a traffic jam, and especially when you're in church. Okay, verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, Okay, you guys have a lot going for you, but there's some things that you're missing. And this is where the Apostle Paul is is coming back with his integrity. He says, look, i got to be consistent with the doctrines that I just told you about the righteousness of God. You are not better than somebody else just because you think you're better than somebody else. You may think you're more spiritual. And you may actually make a list of things that say, I'm more spiritual than that person over there. When you show that list to somebody, they're really going to think you're spiritual. It's very interesting when you, when you look at the passage here. He says, I had to write to you because God's spirit is working in me to preach to you as a pastor and say, you guys are missing this. You're messing up. You're taking the doctrines of grace that have been given to you and you're polluting them. And so he says, uh, he says I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. I've been sent out here as the mediator or the, the go-between. I have been sent to the hinterlands. I'm out here in the middle of no place. I'm out here in Macedonia and how do you say it? Ir, 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 Illyricum. Illyricum. I'll get it. One day I'll go there. <laughs> Paul's been there. And now he's finally just coming back and says, look, I want the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable. And that is in found in there in verse 16. What in the world are we talking about? Is this that the that the Gentiles, these new believers that haven't grown up in church, we want their, their offerings to be acceptable. I misunderstood this, and I think you probably do, too. What do you really want? Do you want to make sure that they give a full tenth of their income? Gross or, or net? No, this is not what it's talking about. It's not, a, it's not a, a, an attack on them. You remember, the, what is the offering that they've given? These people in Achaia and up in Macedonia have taken up money. They have brought food. They have brought stuff to be able to help out the needs of the Christians down in Jerusalem. And the thing that is so fascinating about it is that the folks that are in Asia and the folks that are in Macedonia, that's Achaia and, and up in that, Lyricum. I'm going to get it yet. Okay. He's taken money from all of them and he's gathered it up together and he's going to take it down to Jerusalem and he says, I want this offering to be acceptable. Just scratch your head with me and say, why wouldn't Jerusalem people take the money? (laughs) Why wouldn't they take the money? Strings attached? The government's going to get in. They're going to know that you have $600 passing, change, changing hands. Okay? No, I'm not going to go down that path. The reason why that the people in Jerusalem might not find this acceptable is because it's dirty money. It's from people that didn't grow up in church. They don't do things right. They speak with a different accent. They're, they're outsiders. They're outcasts. They're under the influence of the big government of Italy. They're close to the Roman thing and they know how to say Caesar is Lord out there real real easy. There's not that many churches. Well, there aren't any church buildings built yet. That started in the 300s. This is back in the 60s. So when, when you think about it now, the people in Jerusalem had an ethnic problem. They didn't like the idea that people not like them could get this righteousness too. Is there anybody that you would like to cross off the list that you wouldn't want to see in heaven? I think it's the other way around for us. To those that know how beautiful this gospel message is, you want all the people to have righteousness. i got some new neighbors down the road. Uh, I want them to, to have that righteousness of Christ. I want my neighbor across the street to have the righteousness of Christ. I want everybody in this church right now to have that imputed righteousness of Christ. It's amazing that people would say, hmm, I don't want to associate with those people. And the Apostle Paul is going way out of his way in the book of Romans to tell us that God called him to be a pastor to people who were left out, who were outsiders, who were abandoned. They may be intelligent and they may be rich and they may be in positions of power, but they're outsiders. They're foreigners to the covenant of grace that had been previously understood. And now that since Jesus has already gone to the cross, he's already been in the tomb for the three days, he's already raised from the dead, he's also ascended to heaven, Acts 1, verse 8. He is now sitting and preparing a place for us in heaven. Now he sends us out to go into all the world, especially outside of Jerusalem, even to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, which includes Rome and... Illyricum, okay, it includes all of those, and even to Spain, and even to Delaware. This is a beautiful message. May the God that brings peace be with all of you. All of you. And if you're not at peace, if you're not experiencing that harmony, you'll have to come back next week. Because we're going to reverse. We're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 15 and towards the tail end of 14. Because somehow, somehow, there was disharmony even in Rome. People weren't getting along. Some people thought they were more spiritual if they ate these things and didn't eat these things. Some people thought they were more spiritual if they attended church a little bit more often than others. And guess what? That disharmony, that dissonance, was so loud that even the Apostle Paul had to write about it. You will not have the God of peace be with you all if you're hanging on to your agendas. Now, I'm not saying you're chapter 15 at the end where you have a God who's other than Jesus. Because you're supposed to separate from them, mark them and avoid them. They only are doing their flattery words to deceive a lot of people. That's, that's really not the wheat and the That's actually deceivers. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, Jude tells us to, to be afraid of those or to stay away from them. But if you look back at, at chapter 14 and 15, these are the people that are supposed to be in Christ who don't have, that don't get along. It's time to get along. As much as is possible, Romans 12, live at peace with all those that are in the household of God. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you will give us the joy of realizing that the reason we should be able to get along with one another is not because we haven't met the mark. Lord, because none of us have. There's not one that's righteous in this room. No, not even one. Lord, we thank you that what binds us together is not our righteousness, but your righteousness. Lord, we're thankful that the bank that you keep that has all that imputed righteousness recorded is not subject to any kind of hacker. We know that the account that's been established for for Robert Decker, and I could go around the room and name everyone that is in Christ, those accounts are assured. Lord, I thank you that because you are a righteous God, your wrath doesn't have to fall on us who have the righteousness of Christ imputed. We thank you that there is a righteousness available to us, not by law-keeping, not by our performance, not by our lineage, and not by our payments. Lord, I thank you that you took the cup of pain and you gave us the cup of blessing. We saw that at Gethsemane as you were preparing for the cruel cross. Lord, I love it how Paul references Isaiah 52. He said, there's going to be people who haven't seen, who haven't been told in their upbringing, and they're going to see Jesus. There are people that are going to hear about the message of salvation, and they're going to understand. And then it launches right into Isaiah 53, that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Lord, I thank you for this great salvation. It makes me want to join in chapter 16 at the end. To the only wise God, be glory and honor forever. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Amen. Please stand to your feet as we conclude the service today.